0: and kind uh, invitation, and uh, man, thank you so much for leading us in our time of uh, worship through singing this morning uh, as well. Uh, As as Pastor John said, I have the privilege of being the senior pastor of what's called the First Baptist Church of Douglasville. We're a suburb right outside of Atlanta, and kind of like this church, we've been around for quite some time. Our church dates back all the way to 18. 75, And, uh, man, it's an incredible honor and privilege. I've been the pastor there actually five years to date is when they uh, voted me in. And uh, so it's an honor to be there and to serve those wonderful people. And, uh, man, I just cannot tell you how encouraged I've been uh, in this service. When I was talking to Pastor John this week, kind of asking him about your church to kind of describe you guys a little bit, one of the things that he said was, he said, every week, I'm just so encouraged by the way that we sing. And uh, man, he was right. And so there were a couple of different times where I just didn't sing one. I'm not a very good singer. So it was helpful not to, 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 to do that. But you guys were incredible. I mean, it was absolutely uh, amazing. I, I passed one of those churches where we kind of dim the lights a little bit. We make the music a little bit loud because not everybody sings that well. And uh, this wouldn't work right now in our church, the way that you guys did it. But man, it was unbelievable the way that you guys sang to the Lord. And um, if this is kind of the church that you're really familiar with and you've not been to or part of a lot of other churches, you may not understand the next thing I'm about about to say. But the way that you structure your service and that prayer time that we just uh, had was absolutely uh, encouraging and challenging and life-giving to me. I'm just so thankful for all the things that were just uh, prayed about and so much of that resonated with my heart. So just thank y'all for the opportunity to be here to worship with y'all today. It really is an honor uh, and a privilege. Uh, As John said, my wife, Anna, and I, God's blessed us with six kids. Uh, We actually met uh, in middle school when we were 14 uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. And then we began dating At 17, we're high school sweethearts, and uh, we now have six kids, 14 down to three, four boys, uh, two girls uh, in that order, and God's been very kind and very gracious uh, to us, and as you can imagine, our house is not very uh, quiet, it's very noisy and loud and boisterous, but it is a a magnificent, great place to be, and it's an honor uh, to have those children and to Raise those kids with my wife. But it's great to be with you guys this morning. Let me, let me get to know you a little bit as you've kind of gotten to know me. So just raise your hand and you can talk back to me if you want. I don't know how y'all normally do it, but you, you can talk back and, and all that stuff. It's, it's no no problem. Uh, ra- raise your hand if you are in school to some degree. You're a college student, you're a, you're a graduate student, like some kind of post-high school type. Okay, raise them like really high. All right, good, hands down. R- raise your hand if you've got kids. Maybe you've got some kids in the room. You've got kids. They could be kids in the house. They could be grown kids. All right. Keep your hands raised if you've got grandkids. All right. We got any grandkids in the house? All right. Okay. All right. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Fantastic. All right. Awesome. And then last question. Raise your hand if you would call Texas like home in some way. Texas is like home. All right. Many of y'all, man, the great state. of. All right. Very good. Okay. Put your hands down. So I, I wouldn't call Texas home per se. I would call that uh, Kentucky and North Carolina because of the the ages I was when I lived in those places. But I was born in Dallas. I lived in Dallas for the first seven years of my life. I was born at Baylor Baylor Hospital uh, and uh, I am a a cowboy fan and and all those uh, things. I was born in Dallas, lived here till I was seven. And in 1992, we moved from Dallas, Texas to what was at the time a little town called Wake Forest, Uh, North Carolina, right outside of Raleigh. And when we moved there, I'm the youngest of four boys. We're all within four years of each other. My two oldest brothers are twins. The next brother and I are 17 months apart, so the four of us are really tight in age and still really close by by God's grace. And so we moved to North Carolina. At the time, we were big baseball fans. Eventually we became football and, and basketball guys, but we were big baseball fans at the time. And when we got there, we were living in temporary housing. And my dad was in higher education, and so we were in some school housing, and all of our stuff was in a storage unit. And so we didn't have any of our baseballs or baseball bats or gloves or anything like that. And we were dying to play something. It may it been a couple days since we'd gotten out and played something. And so the people living right next door to us, we went over, we knocked on their door, and they happened to have one baseball, and they happened to have one bat. It was a wooden bat bat we never played with wooden bats we always played with metal bats but that's all they had so we rushed out into the field and we were pumped to play something active for the first time in several days and on the very first pitch one of my twin brothers threw it to the other twin and the twin hit it right on the handle and as soon as it hit the handle it snapped and cracked the bat the game was over so like any responsible boys would do, we just simply went back to their front porch, dropped the bat down, didn't say a word, and ran into our, uh, our house. Didn't say anything. Not thinking anything would happen, I guess. And so a couple hours later, there's a knock on the front door, and uh, my dad opens it, and the neighbor's there. And the neighbor was actually an ethics professor, so everything had to be, you know, done correctly and rightly and all this kind of stuff. And he said to my dad, uh, your boys broke my bat. Uh, You owe me money for the bat. You need to buy me a new bat. So my dad came in the house. He gave it to us. He was not pleased. He was not happy with with what we had done. But the problem was we we didn't have any, any money, all right? And so it wasn't my dad's fault that we broke that baseball bat. That was our fault. But the responsibility of fixing the problem, my dad took on the responsibility. And I've learned in life that life works a lot like that often. See, there's a lot of problems and a lot of brokenness and a lot of struggles, maybe in your own life, especially in the world around you, maybe in this local community, and it's not your fault. I mean, things like broken homes and things like poverty or foster care or Orphans or widows and single parents, social injustice and racism and addictions and spiritual lostness and all these different kinds of brokenness are likely not your fault. But this is the main thing we're about to unpack this morning. If you are a follower of Christ and if you're a member of this church, God has made it your responsibility to do something about it. See, we can't simply say, well, hey, those things are not my fault. They're probably not your fault. But God does make it the church's responsibility to do something about it. And what we are to do is we are to go and find the spiritually broken, and we are to pull them in. We are to lift them up, and we are to point them ultimately to Christ. So I have one main idea this morning, if you take notes there in your Uh, program, bulletin, whatever you call it, you can write this down. Here's the main idea today. The local church is God's plan for reaching the world for Christ. I'll repeat that. The local church is God's plan for reaching the world for Christ. In fact, there's one theologian. He says it like this, and I think this is an incredible statement. He says, God doesn't have a mission for His church. You may go, what? No, He doesn't. God doesn't have a mission for His church. God actually has a church for His mission. God's mission since the beginning of time, especially since sin entered into the world, was to seek and to save all who were lost. And the church now has that mission to go and to seek all who are far from Him. And this is why the world's greatest problem is ultimately spiritual lostness. People dying and spending eternity separated from Christ. In fact, numbers tell us that 157,000 people die every day without Christ. It's a number given by the International Mission Board who was prayed about and prayed for a moment ago as a Southern Baptist church. You partner with that incredible organization that sends missionaries all over the world, mainly to what's called unreached and unengaged people groups. I have the privilege of actually being a trustee with the International uh, Mission Board, and this is a number that they share with us every time that we meet as a trustee board. One hundred and fifty-seven thousand people die every single day without Christ. This would be people right here in this local neighborhood. This would be people in the nations around the world. And see, so the greatest problem in the world is not that there needs to be more money and less poverty more food, less starvation, more peace and less war, better governments and less corruption, more justice and less crime, more education and less illiteracy, more water and less droughts. Now there's no doubt there's a great need for all of those things, but the world's greatest need ultimately is Jesus. And so what I want to try to challenge you with, encourage you with today, is Preston Highlands, you are part of God's plan for reaching the world For Christ. Now, I know that y'all have been in a study through the book of Genesis, but Pastor John, as he said, asked me today to preach this morning on the subject of the centrality of the church in God's mission. So get your Bibles out or turn your Bibles on, however it is you like to do that. Maybe y'all all all just have, uh, you know, hard copies at my church. They get their phones out and all that kind of stuff. Uh, That's fine, as long as you're not going to check, you know, Facebook or social media and those things. And go to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13 this morning. And in case you're not real familiar with Ephesians, it was written as a letter by a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. We consider him the most influential Christian in church history. He traveled the Greco-Roman world, starting churches, then essentially re-traveled it, strengthening those same churches. And he writes this book as a letter to, I believe, a group of local churches that were around this major city called Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. And he's writing this letter to them, and he writes these words under the inspiration of his Holy Spirit. Let's read all the way through verse 13 of Ephesians 3, beginning there in verse 1. Here's what Paul writes. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles who created all things. And then listen to verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart, over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. May God bless the ring of His Word this morning. As you come to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul goes on what is called a spiritual rabbit trail. He's actually getting ready to pray for these churches. And I'm not quite sure what happens in his spirit, but then all of a sudden he kind of changes course for a moment, and he chases a spiritual rabbit, and chasing this rabbit leads him to passionately proclaim that the church is God's plan for reaching the world for Christ. So I want to walk through these verses, and because I believe the local church is God's plan for reaching the world for Jesus, I just want to give you three things that Preston Highlands must be faithful to do as part of this plan. Number one, Serve Jesus no matter the circumstances. If you're going to be used by God to reach the world for Christ, you must serve Jesus no matter the circumstances. Now, we all have different hurdles that we have to overcome in order to truly serve Christ. I don't know what hurdles you might have, but for some of you, the na- main hurdle you have to overcome is that you simply do not feel worthy to serve Jesus. Right now, our church is in the process of appointing what we call deacons. I would guess you have those as well. We do this at the end of every year, moving into a new year. And every time we call these men and ask these men to serve in our church, we'll always have at least one or two men that will say, hey, I'm so thankful for uh, the honor of being asked to be a deacon, but I simply don't feel worthy to fill that role. And it may be possible that you feel the same way when it simply comes to serving the Lord, especially when it comes to this idea of sharing the gospel with others. Maybe it's because you think you have a lack of knowledge. Maybe you think you have limited training. Maybe you say, well, I have an introverted personality. Maybe you have a past that's um, embarrassing to you. Maybe you've got some past shame or guilt that you're still clinging to. And so I was so encouraged several weeks ago when one of our church members who was out on a local community project serving our local community, and he came to me and he said, I I know, Pastor, that I'm not where I need to be spiritually. He said, that's not going to stop me from serving the Lord right now. And I love this. This is a man in our church. He doesn't have a college degree. He has no formal theological education. He does have a rough past. And yet he's being faithful to serve the Lord no matter what. And this is the right heart to have because I've heard one pastor say it this way. He says, a little in the hands of the, of the Lord is a lot. And so maybe this is something that you are struggling with, and this is lived out in the life of Paul. Paul's writing this letter, and let me just let you know he's writing it in prison. He's actually under house arrest in Rome. And look at what he says there again in verse 1. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He's literally in prison. And what's amazing about what he says is he doesn't call himself a prisoner of Caesar or a prisoner of Rome because this is not his identity. This is not what defines him. Instead, he identifies himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Sometimes we forget about Paul's past because we are so encouraged and overwhelmed by all the things that God did through Paul, but Paul had a rough past. I mean, Paul at best was a religious terrorist who was essentially going around the known world and he was trying to put an end to the church. He was full of legalism, and he was full of this zeal for a works-based righteousness, and yet God got a hold of Paul's heart, and because God changed Paul's heart, he gave Paul a new mission. In fact, the main idea of Ephesians is really simple. The main idea of Ephesians is this, who you are in Christ determines how you then live. And so what Paul does is for the first three chapters in Ephesians over and over and over, he reminds these churches of who they are now in Christ. And because of who they are in Christ, then what he does in chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6 is he gets real practical. And he says, hey, because you are this in Christ, here's what this then means for your church. Here's then what this means for your practical life. Here's what this means for your marriage. Here's what this means for your parenting. Here's what this means as a Kid, here's what this means in the spiritual battle of life, and Paul is the perfect example. Because of who he was in Christ, he then lived the rest of his life as a prisoner of Christ, proclaiming the gospel to others. This became the pattern of his life. And see, while Paul is in prison, he served the Lord no matter the circumstances. We see that Paul wrote letters from prison, Paul prayed for the churches from prison. Paul shared the gospel with uh, the guards in prison. He encouraged church members that visited him while he was in prison. And so what I want you to hear this morning is that every single Christian is valuable to God for His purpose of reaching the world for Christ, no matter the circumstance that you find yourself in right now. See, it's through the church, it's through everyone making up the church that God has made known to the world. You can't say, hey, well, because I'm not a quote unquote professional Christian, th- th- this assignment's not for me. When I say professional Christian, a, a pastor, right? Hey, a-, a missionary. No, I, you know what? The Bible's very clear. When you sign up to follow Christ, like a better phrasing. You are signing up for the assignment to then live on a mission of proclaiming the gospel first in your neighborhood, and then I believe also then to the nations. It's an assignment that's been given to every follower of Christ. And you might feel unworthy to tell others about Jesus for a number of reasons. But hear me very clearly this morning. God has placed you where you are according to His call and His will and His divine plan. Take confidence in knowing you're in the job that you're in. You're at the school that you're at. You're in the family that you're in. You live in the neighborhood where you live because God wants you there, at least for this time. As a stay-at-home parent or as a single parent, as a retiree or as an empty nester or as a student, you're where you are because God has you there for a purpose and you can serve the Lord, no matter your circumstances, and again, if you have a past that is holding you back, let me remind you this morning that Jesus Christ took your sin, He took your shame, He took your guilt, and He nailed it to the cross. We have a guy in our church, his name is John Mansell. John's actually going to become the chairman of our deacons in two years. He'll be the, what we call the vice chairman this year, then he'll be the chairman next year. John's story is amazing. John was formerly a devout Mormon. Uh, as a Mormon, he went on a two-year mission to share about Mormonism, as they do uh, in that faith, and he went to Venezuela. And in Venezuela, he learned Spanish. Since then, he's, learned, he's used Spanish for the rest of his life in his career and in his business that he has. Several years ago, God saved John. John became a believer. John became a Christian. And since that time, God has redeemed his past in an incredible, incredible way because we now have a uh, Hispanic ministry in our church. We have a Spanish service every single Sunday that meets. And John is now a key, key leader as a bilingual speaker in that ministry where God took a past in Mormonism, allowed him to learn Spanish, redeemed it by saving him, and now John uses that past every single Sunday for the glory of God. You never know how God's going to redeem your past experiences for His glory and for the good of others. And so if you want to be part of God's plan for reaching the world for Christ, know that God can use you and God desires to use you no matter the circumstances. A second point I want to make this morning is this. As God's plan for reaching the world for Jesus, steward the power of the gospel. Serve Jesus no matter the circumstances. Number two, steward the power of the gospel. We now get to verses 2 through 12, which really is kind of the meat of this passage In 1798, Napoleon began to occupy Egypt, but by September 1801, he was forced out. So those three years were a failure from a military and a political perspective. But when it came to archaeology, Napoleon's time in Egypt was significant because in August of 1799, his army discovered what you may have heard of, which is called the Rosetta Stone. And this discovery was important because it gave archaeologists the key to understanding Egyptian hieroglyphics. In fact, we understand much of what we do today when it comes to modern Egyptian studies because of that discovery. And Paul's going to use a word in verses 2 through 12 called the mystery. And the mystery that Paul is about to talk about is God's Rosetta Stone. It is the key to unlocking the power of the gospel. And so I'm just going to summarize verses 2 through 12. There's a ton there, but for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize uh, those verses today by essentially focusing on three key words that Paul uses in these verses. All right, let's begin there in verse 2. And in verse 2, Paul tells us that he is a steward of Of God's grace. In other words, he's been entrusted by God with the mission of sharing the gospel among the Gentiles. If you don't know what the Gentiles are, Gentile is essentially a non Jew. They were considered those that were outside of the people of God, outside of the covenant people, the chosen people of God. But the mission that Paul was. Chosen to steward is this mission of taking Gentiles, taking Jews, bringing them together as one new special people that we now call the church, a people made up of Jew and a people made up of Gentile. And just like Paul, you too, Preston Highlands, have this same ministry, this same ministry that you are called by God to steward. So the first word I want to focus there on is that word steward. Here's how I would define the word. You are to manage and to look after the power of the gospel. That's what it means. As a believer, as a church, you are to look after, you are to manage the power of the gospel. So moving into verses three through six, Paul then shows us how powerful the gospel is by using a second word that I want to focus on. That word is mystery. He used the word mystery in verse 3, again in verse 4, and then again in verse 6. And here's the kind of mystery that Paul is referring to. It is a truth hidden by God in times past, but now is revealed to those who are in His family. Okay, It was a truth that was hidden in the past. But if you're part of God's family with special access, God actually gives you and I special knowledge of what this mystery is. It's kind of like, you know, when you got a friend that says, Hey, i got a secret. Don't tell anybody else. Well, I'm going to tell you the secret, right? That's what God's doing. If you're part of God's family, you and I are told what this mystery is. But it was a mystery that was hidden in the past, but now God reveals it to His people. And Paul tells us, I'm thankful for Paul, he tells us exactly in verse 6 what it is. He just lays it out there, All right. So even if you're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, Paul just goes ahead and tells you, here's what the mystery is. You look there in verse 6, and the mystery is simply this. The gospel of Jesus is so powerful that it brings enemies together. That's what it is. The gospel is so powerful that it brings different people together. Together, I mean, I love what Pastor John prayed a moment ago. I mean, he said this in his prayer in not so many words. He said, I'm so thankful to be part of a church where I have more in common, right, with an elderly widow than I do with a man my age with kids, right? This is the mystery that Paul is talking about. This is the power of the gospel. The gospel is so powerful, it brings different people, even enemies Together and it makes them one new family. And here, Paul is talking specifically about Jew and Gentile, but this has unbelievable implications for the church in the modern world because we live in a world full of rivalry. And he prayed a lot about politics a moment ago, and I love the way that he did it. I don't know about your church, but the folks in Georgia and the folks at First Baptist Church Douglasville love them some politics. And it was during COVID that I decided it was best for me to get off of social media. Maybe I'm a bad pastor. Maybe I am being neglectful. But honestly, ignorance was bliss for me because during COVID, I was constantly getting frustrated with all the different rants that my church members were going on on social media. And I finally said, you know what? I just don't even want to know. Maybe I'm a bad pastor. I don't know. I just chose not to know. And so I'm not on there anymore. And I don't know all the... Crazy things they say. But when it comes to politics, the people in my church are uh, very uh, opinionated and typically in one particular stream. We've got some others, but mainly one stream uh, that is really present in the life of our church. And see, Paul's about to tell us here the gospel is so powerful that it can even bring rivalries together like Republican and Democrat. Uh, they can actually coexist together in one family. And see, we live in a world full of these different kinds of rivalries. And this rivalry between Jew and Gentile was unbelievably fierce. In fact, you could argue it perhaps one of the most fierce, if not the most fierce rivalry in the history of the world. See, it was a religious rivalry. Because the Jews viewed the Gentiles as those that did not know, and they didn't. They did not know the God of Israel. They were not the chosen people. It was religious. But not only was it religious, it was also cultural. See, Jews had special rituals. They had special ceremonies that separated them, that distinguished them from the nations around them. Not only was it religious, not only was it cultural, it was also racial. See, the Jews could boast of having the blood in their veins of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These were the founders of Israel. And they had had their blood pulsing through their veins. The men that were used to start the nation of Israel. And this is what makes the gospel of Jesus so powerful because it brings these two groups together as one. And it's this power that the church is to steward. And then in verses 7 through 12, Paul makes it clear that it's now through the church that we steward this power. It's not through the local government, not through the local school system, not even through parachurch organizations, not through individual Christians. It's through the church collectively that this power is to be stewarded. So the third word I want to emphasize is the word church. And look again there at verse 10. Paul says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. It's the church made up of all kinds of different peoples and cultures that reveal God's wisdom. So as the church, you are to make much of Christ. You're to celebrate God's grace. You're to exercise humility toward one another, understanding that everybody needs Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to share some practical implications for what this means practically for your church. Now, before I do this, I just want you to know I'm thankful that Pastor John asked me to preach on this, so we were preaching through Ephesians as a church. We just ended that. We have just started a four-week kind of Advent Christmas series, but we were preaching through this, and when we came to this particular passage of Scripture, it's been about six weeks now, it really became a vision Sunday for us. I I didn't know it was going to be when I was prepping for it, but as I was studying for that message. God doesn't always do this for me. I don't know how it works for Pastor John, but it's not like every time I prepare for a message that I have like this epic aha moment where, you know, God just especially puts something on my heart. He always does because he always speaks through his word. But I think there are unique times in the life of a Christian, life of a believer, where as you're reading the word, the word of God and the spirit of God just work Sometimes in a unique way, and as you're reading, it's just kind of like, boom, something just goes off. It's just a light bulb. And I was actually traveling at the time. I was on an airplane, and I was reading, preparing for the message I was going to preach that Sunday on Ephesians 3. And as I was on the airplane, God just man, kind of turned something on in my heart. And what he turned on to my heart was that this passage of scripture was the key, is the key for the future of our church. Now, our church is going to be a little bit different than yours. Uh, the reason this is the key for our church is because our church uh, is in a sub- is a suburb of Atlanta, is in a suburb of Atlanta. Uh, we're in an area that was uh, primarily uh, a rural uh, community for many, many years. Primarily a uh, white community. Uh, for many, many years, primarily a community that voted a particular way, Republican for many, many, many years. And over the last 20 years, because of the growth of Atlanta, our city has massively changed, significantly changed. It went from about 70% uh, white, now it's 30% white, it's about 60, 55% uh, black, and it's about 10 13% Hispanic, and then a smattering of a few others makes it small. We went from being primarily Republican now to 80% or so vote the other uh, way. I said to say that has dramatically changed our community, but our church has not reflected that. And so our church reflected something much different than our community. And I came in five years ago knowing if we were going to actually make an impact for Jesus, if we were actually going to... Uh, do something great for the Lord, we were going to have to become a different kind of church. We were going to have to be a church not only located in the city, but a church for our city, a church that really just said, you know, the gospel is for all kinds of people. And so as I was reading Ephesians 3, God just kind of lit something in my heart. It said if, if First Baptist Church, Douglasville, does not unlock the mystery of the power of the gospel to bring all kinds of people together as one, this church's future is going to be very limited in what it can do, and so I made this a vision Sunday for our church and went through things in a much deeper than I will with you all because I'm not the pastor of this church and I don't necessarily know this particular community. But looking at the room, I am thankful that God's created some diversity—not just the color of skin, uh, but the ages in the room, the family dynamics in there. I mean, all, the education levels in the room. I mean, all of that is significant and important. So it does have implications for you, just like it does. For our church. And I'll say one last thing. I think Pastor John would agree with this. I actually believe that for the future health of the church in America, churches have to understand the power of Ephesians chapter 3. Our nation is becoming more and more and more and more diverse all of the time. And the reason a lot of churches are dying and a lot of churches are not growing, if you didn't know that, that is true. They're dying and they're ceasing to exist is because they have not unlocked the mystery of the power of the gospel that can bring all kinds of groups of people together. And this is what the church of Jesus Christ as a whole in America needs. So just two kind of practical things. One, what does this mean theologically? Okay, What does this theologically mean that Paul has just unpacked for us in verses 2 through 12? Here's what it means. Many Jews believe that the Gentiles... Had to have faith in God, plus they had to become Jewish, okay, circumcised, and all these things in order to be brought into the family of God, in order to be brought into the church. You gotta have faith, but you also gotta become culturally Jewish, okay? And then, then you're brought into the family of God, you're brought into the church. See, these Jews believe that the Gentiles had to observe all the Jewish rituals and all the religious practices. But Paul reminds us time and time again in the Bible that all that is required to be brought into the family of God is repentance of sin and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all that's required to be brought in. And I'll add to that in a minute. But that's all that's required to be brought in is repentance of sin and faith in Christ. And so Paul's saying, look, here's the application that it has for your church, that it has for My church. Become a follower of Christ and a member of a local church family. You don't have to be American. You don't have to come from a certain country. You don't have to speak a certain language. You don't have to have a particular skin color. You don't have to vote for a certain political party. You don't have to like certain types of Christian music. You don't have to have been raised in the church. You don't have to have the quote-unquote ideal family. Many of you won't know this reference, some will. You don't have to have the leave-it-to-beaver family, all right? If you don't get that reference, it means you're young, okay? So you don't have to have that kind of family. You don't have to be educated. You don't have to be wealthy. And the list could go on and on. Theologically, it means, no, you simply have to admit that you are a sinner in need of God's grace and mercy, And you fall on the grace and mercy of God by putting your faith and trust in the perfect life, the death of the cross, and the glorious resurrection of Christ. And then you are brought into God's family. That's what it means theologically. And the reason that's important is for your church, that's what you are proclaiming. That's what you are preaching. That's what you are simply inviting people to be part of. So people that are different than you, you don't have to get them... Uh, to change, to be like you before they can be brought into your family. You simply have to get them to acknowledge they're a sinner in need of God's grace and then to put their faith and trust in Christ. It's very important theologically. But number two, here's what it looks like practically. And again, your church, I believe, is already on the way there. Just by looking at the room, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. This means you're to strive to be a multicultural when I say multicultural, I mean multiethnic. I mean multiracial. I mean multilingual. And a multi generational church. You're striving to be a church that is welcoming of every kind of person. We say it this way in our church, and at first people didn't really like it, but they've uh, either left uh, or they they've they've bought into it. We say it this way. We say um, uh, you. You don't have to, you can come as you are, but you can't stay as you are. That's how we say it. You can come as you are, and we invite you, and we welcome you, but you're not allowed to stay as you are. None of us are allowed to stay as we are. That's called discipleship. It's called growing to being more and more like Christ. And I know we got some younger ears in the room, so I'll use this, uh, discretion here, but really where this, the road met, met the road in our church. I've been there about a year. Our priest, I preached, we were preaching through 1 uh, uh, Corinthians, I decided to preach a sermon where I spent about 15 minutes on a particular topic. Okay, Same-sex marriage, same-sex, that topic. And in that topic, I made it very clear Okay, that in our church, we believe that's a sin. Here's why. Here's what God's design is. One man, one woman for life. Made all that crystal clear. But then I made this statement. I said, however, if you struggle with same-sex attraction or you act on same-sex attraction, we are so glad that you are here. We want you to be here because we want you to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want the gospel to change your life and we want you to give your life to Jesus and we want you to follow his design. I prayed that, I, I, I said that. I walked out the doors, I kid you not, walk out the doors to greet people. The moment I did, this person came right up to me, church member. Pastor Tim, can I ask you a question? I said, Yes, ma'am, you can ask me anything you want. She said, um, You don't mean what you just said, do you? I said, Well, you got to remind me. I, I said a lot of stuff. She, I knew what she wanted, but I was just being kind of you know, smart. Aleck. And she said, uh, she said uh, pastors can be smart from time to time. We shouldn't be, but we can be. So she said, uh, she said well, the whole thing about uh, same-sex marriage, same-sex attraction, she said, you don't want those people here, do you? And I said, no, I really would like those people here. I'd love for them to be here. And she said to me, they're never going to change. I said, well, that's just where you and I believe in a different gospel. I said, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful, it can change anybody. And I said, said, it changed you, didn't it? And she walked off. And uh, that conversation ended. But this is what this means theologically, right? This is what this means, is that it has the ability, the power, and practically, right, that we say, no, all are welcomed, and then you change as the gospel of Jesus Christ takes root in your heart. But all these people are welcome, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-generational. It's what I like to call a neighborhood church. It's where you essentially say we're going to, over time, just be a church that's for all people. So over time, we're going to reflect our community. We're going to reflect our... We're not going after diversity for diversity's sake. That's what the world does. Let me just be very clear. Okay, The world goes after diversity for diversity's sake. We go after diversity because it's a gospel issue, meaning the gospel's for all people. And so we just say, we're going to share it with anybody. We're not going to discriminate. We're going to share it with everybody. And if our community happens to be diverse, then we will become diverse because we share it with everybody. That, that's what Paul is unpacking here. And that's why this is so significant in the world and in the culture in which we currently live. It's a church that adopts Jeremiah 29.7. Here's what Jeremiah says, what God says in Jeremiah 29.7, great verse He says to the people of Israel who are in exile, not their home country in Babylon, they're there, and here's what God says to them in a place that's not their home country. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Instead of bemoaning maybe the different things that have changed or gone wrong in the community or in the neighborhood. I love again what Pastor preached. Instead, he preached for God to change it and God to transform it. He prayed for God's blessing and God's goodness upon the local school system and the local politics. Instead of complaining about it, pray that God will bless it for His good and for, the, for His glory for the good of others. A church is like this, is a church that sees itself as a missional outpost in the city, not a church that's a refuge from the city key difference it's a church where every member is they they feel seen they feel heard they feel respected they feel loved it's a church where every culture has a seat at the table it's a church where every member feels uncomfortable from time to time because of language difference culture difference age difference different music preferences, different perspectives on race and economics and politics. But even with feeling uncomfortable, it's a church where there is unity because you are one in Christ. Again, this is the mystery that Paul is talking about. The mystery is that the gospel is so powerful it breaks down any barrier and it brings different cultures together as one family. And I believe when a church embraces this truth, it's a church that will be part of God's plan for reaching the world for Christ. So you serve Jesus no matter the circumstances. You steward the power of the gospel. And finally this morning, suffer for the mission of God. You suffer for the mission of God. You know, baseball players shouldn't be surprised when they get hit by a baseball Soldiers shouldn't be surprised when the enemy fires on them. In the same way, Christians should not be surprised when you suffer for the mission of God. This is what Paul gets at in verse 13. As he kind of brings this thought to a close, he encourages the church not to lose heart over his suffering. His suffering, namely here, is that he's been in prison because he's proclaimed the gospel. Paul knows that suffering comes with the territory. Paul knows that when it comes to being God's plan for reaching the world for Christ, the church, Christians are going to suffer. But Paul has not lost heart because he knows that the glory of the gospel is much greater than his suffering. One theologian says it like this, The mystery of the gospel, the ministry of the gospel, and the manifold wisdom of the gospel makes counting the cost an easy Calculation. think Think about it like this. If political campaigns can raise millions of dollars, recruit thousands of volunteers, and make hundreds of speeches all in the name of a human leader and a human message, how much more should we press on as Christians in the face of suffering when we announce a divine message and serve a heavenly king? In fact, the church is growing the most, actually, in countries around the world where Christians are suffering the most. The church is exponentially growing in places like Iran and places like China where people are constantly being persecuted for their faith in Christ. God is faithful to continue to increase His church even in the midst of suffering. And all of this for His glory and for the good of others. And I think COVID... Uh, began this. I think it's going to likely continue, but I really do believe there is going to come a time when it's going to become increasingly, increasingly, increasingly difficult to be a believer and to be part of a local church in America. It's coming. It's going to happen. It's going to come. And the question is, do we love Christ enough to be willing to suffer? Is Christ enough for us, or Have we mangled and mixed Jesus and America more together than we actually think that we have? And we're going to be given a test. And the question is going to be, are we going to pass the test and are we going to be faithful to Christ? you obeying Jesus is never easy. It's especially difficult in the face of suffering. But Jesus tells us to take up our cross and to follow Him. We are to endure pain as part of his plan for reaching the world for Jesus. As a Preston Highlands, if you choose to be part of God's plan for reaching the world as members of this church, you're going to have awkward conversations when you share the gospel. You're going to probably experience broken relationships where people choose not to be your friend because of your faith in Christ. You're going to be rejected from time to time. You're going to be marginalized. Maybe by God's grace, you actually are able to begin to impact somebody far from God. And guess what you get? Probably a really messy relationship, probably with someone with a lot of baggage and a lot of issues to help them overcome and to walk through in their life because discipleship is incredibly messy. But if you choose to do this, you'll be following your crucified Savior. The Bible says that He is preparing for you a weight of glory beyond all comparison. The Bible says that suffering will give way to glory. And because of this, the church of Jesus Christ is able to endure this life with hope. And so we suffer for God's mission because we know that it is ultimately worth it. I'll end with this story. In 1993, there was a severe famine in Sudan. Uh, I remember as a kid hearing about this and kind of seeing this and seeing seeing reports on the news about this. So it led to a massive food shortage and led to starvation, people dying from starvation. And so to capture the crisis, a photographer by the name of Kevin Carter, maybe you've heard this story before, he went to Sudan. And while he was in Sudan, he came across a young Sudanese child. Uh, This Sudanese child was literally crawling in the dirt, Uh, crawling in the dirt, trying to get to a UN feeding station. And what really caught Carter's attention was that near the child, there was a vulture. Uh, This vulture was crouched down. This vulture was getting ready to pounce. This vulture could tell that either this child had died or was getting ready to die. So Carter set up his camera and got it in the perfect spot, perfect angle, waited for over an hour for the lighting, just to get perfectly right. And then he took a picture capturing that little child in the dirt and that vulture getting ready to pounce. He got them together in the same frame. That picture went on to win the 1994 Pulitzer Prize. And because he won the Pulitzer Prize, he essentially went on kind of a traveling spree where he went around to different banquets, and different events, and he talked about the picture and, and he was honored for winning the award. But almost every time... As he was at these events, people would come to him and they would ask him the same question. And I'm sure it's the same question that you're asking. The question was this. Hey, what happened to the child? And Carter did not know. See, Carter left that child simply crawling in the dirt. Again, I know we've got young ears in the room that impacted Carter so much. He made a life-changing decision in that same year because he could not deal with the guilt of doing nothing to help that child. See, that child's brokenness was not Carter's fault. It wasn't his fault that child was starving. It wasn't his fault that child was in need, but he chose not to make it his responsibility either. And there are hundreds and thousands of people right here in your city, in the greater Dallas area, that are crawling in the spiritual dirt. They are helpless. They are hopeless to fix their own brokenness. And their spiritual brokenness is not your fault. But as a believer in Christ and as part of God's local church, He has made it your responsibility to do something About it. And the reason for this is your sin and your shame and your guilt was not Jesus' fault. It wasn't your fault. It wasn't Jesus' fault that you rebelled against God, but Jesus made it his responsibility. And when you and I were crawling in the dirt of our sin, helpless and hopeless to save ourselves, Jesus Christ went to the cross taking on our sin and our shame and the wrath of God so that whoever believes in Him will be saved. And I pray this morning, if you've never made the decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've never made the decision to give your life to Jesus, I pray that today, as soon as our service comes to an end, you will talk to Pastor John, or you'll come and speak to me, and we'll help you make the greatest decision ever, turning from your sin and turning to... Jesus, And then here's what happens. The same God that saves then sends you and I out as His plan to reach the world for Jesus. And so it's my prayer, Preston Highlands, that God may use you in a powerful way in your neighborhood and to the nations for His glory and for the good of others. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your amazing, amazing grace. Father, we thank You that Your grace and Your favor is unmerited. Father, we didn't do anything to earn it or to receive it, but God, in Your goodness and in Your grace, You chose to love us, You chose to forgive us by sending Your Son into this world. And Father, we are especially reminded of that truth this time of year as we are reminded of the coming of Your Son, the coming of Christ. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today in the room that's never before made the decision to turn from their sins and to give their life to You, that today they would become a follower of King Jesus. I also pray, Lord, that You would press on the hearts of every member of this church a desire to steward the power of the gospel knowing that the gospel of Jesus is powerful enough to change the life of anyone. And that, Father, You use us as Your means, as Your instrument, as Your messengers to take Your gospel first to our neighborhood and then to the nations. Father, may You use this church in a mighty in a powerful way to be an incredible kingdom outpost right here in this local community, right here in this neighborhood. I pray that this week you'd give these members opportunities, give them boldness, give them the opportunity to have conversations about the gospel. Father, give them favor with their family, favor with their friends, favor with their neighbors and their co-workers and their fellow students. Father, give them opportunities to lead people to faith and trust in you. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for what he achieved for us through his life, his death, his resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that we can have peace and hope and joy because of our faith in him. We thank you that you've brought us together as one family. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.